2: Hello and welcome to the Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and today I'm once again on my own. Uh, my colleague Paul Rickard is swanning around Europe, having a great time. So I'm here to entertain you and also hopefully educate you. And the topic I want to get my teeth into today—I've you know, been a lot of people have been putting their teeth into me on Twitter on this subject, and that is seriously: can house prices in Australia really fall? by 40%. And and of course, there are people out there who keep telling me that I'm completely misled, believing that maybe the worst case scenario might be 15 to 20%. But no, they're out there. And so I thought, well, let's pull in a few experts to see what they think. And secondly, what is the actual fall in prices at this point in time? And what's the, the likely momentum there that could actually either drive it towards 40%, which I don't think will happen, or possibly uh, the the kind of developments that say, no, that's not going to happen. So we'll be talking to Sarah Hunter, who's a chief Australian economist at BIS Oxford Economics. And BIS is the old BIS Shrapner, which is a specialist property um, forecasting business. So what Sarah has to say, she comes from Oxford Economics, which recently took over BIS Shrapnel. So her views are going to be very interesting. We're going to be talking to Tanya De Jong about a very, very interesting conference that's coming up in Australia that many of you out there might consider uh, going along to. And then we're going to talk to Tim Lawless, who's Research Director at CoreLogic. And CoreLogic is arguably the most quoted company when it comes to house prices. He can tell us what's actually going on with house prices right now and what are they predicting given their background, their long-term association with house prices in Australia. Tim's insights should be enlightening, without a doubt. So without any further ado, let's go to Sarah Hunter, Chief Australian Economist at BIS Oxford Economics. Well, Sarah, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, Sarah, the theme is you know, what's happening to house prices, but it seems to me, you being an economist as you are, I should start off with the economic setting because I figured if the economy really goes badly, then there will be a reasonably serious house price implication. Is that a fair call?
3: Um, I think it certainly uh, can reinforce it. So, if we do get a, a significant slowdown in the economy, if uh, employment growth really slows, wages growth doesn't pick up, so household income growth is really weak, um, then that will definitely uh, have some uh, knock-on impacts on the housing market. I think also if uh, if we get a, a sort of third um, event that perhaps triggers both um, some of the slowdown in the economy and some further slowing in the housing market, such as um, some significant policy shifts following the uh, conclusion of uh, the royal commission then um, when we could see uh, the impact of that coming through on both sides
2: okay great so let's just kick off then with you know a really important issue for uh, the economy as well as house prices inevitably would be your growth outlook for the economy what did you think you know in 2018 about the economy in 2019 and what are you thinking now
3: so um, I so, at the end of last year, uh, we actually uh, put out a, a nice little summary piece for our clients, and in there we were highlighting that we think that growth this year is going to slow down to around about the two and a half percent that's GDP growth from uh, our estimate of three percent for two thousand and eighteen mm-hmm. uh, main reasons for the slowdown one, we think consumer spending um, is is going to be slower uh, growing this year than last year. In fact, we already sort of saw the start of that in uh, Uh, the uh, September quarter data that we got uh, in December just before the holidays. Uh, We also think uh, we're going to get a downturn in uh, residential construction activity again. We're already starting to see that come through. It's just going to uh, be more of a drag this year uh, than last year. Um, And uh, in terms of the external environment, um, generally we think that the uh, global economy is likely to slow um, this year compared to last year. Last year uh, is set to be a pretty strong year for the global economy this year, uh, a bit weaker, although not a recession, not not a downturn, but just slower growth. And so put those three things together, then um, the outlook for this year is just that bit weaker. Um, Right now, I I broadly think uh, about the same. Uh, The risks definitely increased on the downside, mostly because of what we've seen happening uh, internationally. There's definitely been some weak data come out and obviously we've had some quite violent movements in financial markets as well, which uh, could well start to spill over to the real economy. So slower for sure. I'm I'm not upgrading my forecast, but equally, uh, uh, I don't think I need to downgrade that forecast just yet.
2: Okay. So let's talk about the jobs outlook as a consequence of your slower economy.
3: Uh, Yeah. So for, for jobs growth, I think we'd already seen that jobs growth had actually slowed um, in 2018 compared to 2017. So, uh, jobs uh, kind of ran ahead of the rest of the economy, had a really strong 2017 when GDP growth wasn't um, uh, that spectacular. Then, last year, jobs growth started to slow, uh, and GDP growth uh, slowed in the September quarter but started the year really strongly. So, actually, I think the jobs growth is probably more of the same uh, compared to what we've, we've seen in the last few months, and that's really been quite patchy growth. You get a good month and then we get a not-so-great month and then perhaps another good month. I think we'll have more of the same. So it'll be more subdued compared to what it was, say, 12, 18 months ago, but still growing um, and still increasing employment, just uh, not as spectacular as uh, we've had in the recent past.
2: Did you actually add up the number of jobs we created in 2018?
3: Uh, It's a good question. I think it's uh, around about the 250,000 mark, which is quite a bit Mm. less than uh, 2017. So, 2017, we added just over 400,000 jobs to the economy. So, that was Mm. really spectacular. That was that really strong number Mm. uh, that uh, everyone was talking about. Uh, Last year, we added, I'm just looking it up on my side now, um, yeah, it's going to be it's, it'll be something actually a bit bit more than I just said. Probably more like two hundred seventy five thousand something like that okay. from December twenty eighteen over December twenty seventeen. So, so it's it's good. It's it's solid performance, but it's obviously not as good um, no. as we had the year before. Okay,
2: let's go to the link now. Explain to my listeners the link between economic growth and house prices.
3: Uh, so, it sort of works in, in both ways. Uh, so, uh, thinking first off in terms of how the real economy can affect the housing market, uh, it's really uh, house prices are, are very much linked to um, household incomes and the position of of consumers more broadly. So, if you think about how much an owner-occupier can borrow in terms of a mortgage, very much linked to, to how much uh, they might be earning. So, what's happening to wages and what's happening to employment overall. So, if you're employed, you you generally got a higher income than if not. Uh, so, so, there's an obvious clear linkage. If we get weak growth in wages, weak growth in income, then that can put the brakes on any uh, rise in house prices. Um, it also, though, uh, definitely cuts the other way. So, uh, for households, if you're looking at your financial position, you're perhaps thinking about how much you can afford to spend, uh, particularly on discretionary items like buying a new car, um, your financial wealth and the value of your house, then, as a, as a measure of a financial uh, an asset really matters in that decision. So, it comes back the other way, those falling house prices we've, we've seen in recent months. Car sales have really dropped off quite sharply, and that coincides with those Declines in house prices and it's discretionary spending like that that really sort of feels the pinch when you get um, you know uh, dips and drops in um, in households' uh, financial uh, wealth position. So, Mm. cuts both ways really. Okay, so
2: the main reasons for the house price falls now, and I guess before you do that, if you can, just give us just to remind my listeners what Sydney and Melbourne have fallen by. Either from the top, or from the past year, whatever number mm-hmm. numbers are, are in your head.
3: Yeah. So, so in terms of the size of the decline over the uh, over 2018 in Sydney, it's probably going to come around about the 10, 11 percent mark. We don't have uh, the December data just yet. So, yeah. uh, uh, for Melbourne, it's, it's a bit less than that, it's around about the four percent mark. Um, Did you say four. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's quite materially less yeah. than uh, than Sydney. Yeah, Sydney's okay. definitely done the, the bulk of the uh, yeah. of the work, if you like, um, in terms of, of those declines. Uh, maybe that Melbourne number is a touch higher, actually. It depends on the measure that you look at and if it's uh, detached or attached housing. But Sydney's fallen substantially more than, than any other market yeah. over the last year, definitely uh, the case. Um, and Peter Trough for Sydney is looking uh, now sitting around the 12% mark at the moment, something like that. Okay. Again, it depends okay. on what numbers we get. And, and, um, yeah and, oh, and,
2: and, and so sorry sarah and, and what what is bis oxford economics thinking will be the the worst well, no, what they th- what do you think the house price falls will be in sydney and melbourne by the time it starts to go either sideways or starts sneaking mm-hmm.
3: up so, peak to trough for Sydney, we think it's going to be around about the 15% mark. So, actually, Sydney's done the, the most, the bulk of the work, if you like, in terms of the size of that correction. Melbourne will be a touch less than that, uh, but still likely to be double digit. Uh, so, it's got further to go. So, we actually think that we'll see a bigger downward correction in Melbourne property prices this year than we'll see in Sydney, uh, given where they're, they're starting from. Yeah. Um, in terms of what's driving this, I think there's a there's a few things going on. There's uh, certainly if we look back over the recent past, we've got the cooling of investor activity in the market. They were a big driver of the upturn in the uh, in the boom years, yep. um, and a combination of. Uh, Policy uh, shifts from APRA to restrict lending to that particular group, uh, and then the, the turn in the market generally, which therefore makes uh, buying a property from an investment perspective less attractive, have really dampened activity there. Yep. More recently, we've also had um, a shift in lending conditions for owner occupiers, and uh, uh, in our, our view, this is uh, the, uh, the banks really preempting uh, what's going to be the results of the Royal Banking Commission. So they've tightened up lending conditions. Uh, for owner occupiers in general, they're more strictly enforcing all of the, the rules and regulations that are in place. And that have been in place for a while around how they measure uh, our spending patterns and measure those against income and, and that sort of thing. And so, that's really added to um, the, the rules that were put in place around investors and has put further downward pressure on prices. So, very much a, a policy-induced, if you like, policy and uh, lending conditions-induced shift in the housing market. And that's really what's uh, dampened down those house prices. Uh, so that that's caused that sort of shift, and, and that's what we've seen coming through. And, and it's come through most strongly in Sydney and Melbourne, because of course those markets saw the biggest upturn, um, and so they they had the sort of the most people that were overstretched, if you like, and, and at the margin uh, had the most correcting back to do, given the shift in the policy environment.
2: Mm. And so, and I presume once you get this negativity happening, and house price prices fall people are reluctant to stick their neck out and pay too much for a home until they start believing that it's hit bottom.
3: Yeah, there's definitely some evidence of that. It's certainly the case that... um Churn in the housing market, so the number of properties that are being that are going onto the market that are changing hands, so the number of transactions is definitely um, lower than it was when the market was booming. And you're right, obviously, if you're a seller, you don't really want to be, uh, you know, you don't, ideally don't want to to sell um, in a downward trending market. And equally, if you're a buyer, um, you, you know it's uh, it's hard to sort of buy in if you if you think that prices have perhaps got further to fall and you don't want to pay more than you would have to pay in you know, a in a few months' time. So there's definitely lower levels of activity than we saw, say, 12, 18 months ago. Uh, Go on, Sarah. I was going to say, having said that, though, there is still activity going on. I think what's really interesting is um, we do still have uh, owner-occupiers in particular trying to transact. So... uh, Um, And, you know, there is still um, buyers out there uh, looking to buy. And uh, so it does suggest that, again, particularly for Sydney, we've done the bulk of the correcting, that perhaps there's not too much further to go until we hit the trough. I mean, there is further uh, for sure, but perhaps not too much further.
2: So when you see some people making predictions that house prices could fall 40%, Clearly, it's not a national fall, 40%. They would be referring to the hottest markets like Sydney. How realistic would a 40% price fall be?
3: I think to see that kind of price decline, uh, we definitely would need to see um, quite a substantial negative shock to the system. Uh, So I don't see that uh, playing out as a... Uh, sort of, if we if we don't get any change in terms of the policy environment, bank lending uh, conditions, all of those things that we've got in place right now, uh, I, I don't think that we'll see a 40% decline. It's very, very hard to see what would be the driver of that because, as I said, we do still have this underlying demand for housing. People are still w- looking in the market and, and uh, buyers are still there. So, um, given that we've got that sort of bedrock, if you like, it, it's hard to see how the prices can fall in Sydney another say 30% or more from where they are right now. Yeah. Um, so what might that shock look like, that sort of extra uh, negativity coming through? Well, perhaps a very significant shock to the global economy, something like the financial crisis uh, all over again. Mm. again. We don't see that at all happening um, on the horizon, but you know, it's, uh, it's a risk. Um, um, or perhaps something, um, a, a really, really substantial um, tightening in bank lending conditions. Uh, perhaps in response to again the sort of results of the Royal Banking Commission, but you know, it's it's not um, it's, we don't think that that's a very very likely outcome at all uh, in terms of looking at uh, the you know the position of your average household in terms of their mortgage debt position the average, even the average uh, borrower that's taking on a new mortgage new, uh, they're they're not um, overstretched the. Uh, They don't – they're not in financial distress. So, Mm. hard to see uh, what would prompt the banks or what would prompt the the Royal Commission to come to the conclusion that they would have to really uh, change the the rules of the game, if you like, so dramatically to to result in that kind of price correction. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So, I don't think it's a very likely outcome at all.
2: Okay. Yeah. And so, it seems to me then, Sarah, that um, – In fact, one of the points I'd like to make up is that every time I'm criticized on Twitter for actually suggesting that this 40% is like a a big call and unlikely to happen, people say, well, hang on. If you look at 18 countries that have had price booms like Australia with household debt income really high, they've all seen their bubble burst. And I started thinking about all those economies like. Ireland. And I thought, well, is Ireland a similar economy to Australia and and USA? Well, USA is more similar, but the lending is different there. And all those countries had recessions. So in a sense, what you're saying is that if a serious recession came along, maybe a big price drop will happen, but you have to get a really serious recession.
3: Yeah, I, I, exactly. I think that that is definitely fair to say. And I think uh, particularly looking at, we mentioned a couple of those countries where obviously their big price corrections happened through and then after the financial crisis. The, the key thing there was that uh, the banking systems in those countries were, were very, very vulnerable to house price corrections, that the lending that had taken place in, in those countries would, uh, in, the, in the case of Ireland and the UK, for example, people were being lent uh, 125% mortgages. So they were being lent more than the value of the house, mm. uh, and obviously that was predicated on the house. Then yeah, the price continuing to rise, and you uh, you you see those the the mortgage eventually is is less than the value of the house, and you get out of negative equity. The banks here uh, are not lending um, in the same way. They're you know they're not lending to people. Uh, uh, more than 100% of the value of the house There, you know interest only lending as a proportion of all lending is has come down again that's a policy induced shift uh, imposed by apra the majority of new mortgages taken on have a loan to value ratio less than 80% so there's a considerable buffer there so all this means that the banks are are in a, a reasonable you know a sound financial position they uh the mortgage um, uh, assets that they have on their books are by and large, performing loans, that, you know, there's not a risk that um, they'll have to foreclose on their loans, but all of those sort of negative things which, which came through um, in Ireland and the US and other countries in the financial crisis. We, we don't have any evidence at the moment that the banks in Australia are, are in the same precarious position. Um, And, you know, indeed, APRA released um, last year the results of their stress testing exercise that they do um, every few years. And and the the conclusion from them was that the banks are well capitalized, they're sound, they are in a position that they could withstand a downturn in the economy and and what that would mean for jobs and um, household income and, and mortgage repayments and what have you. So there's no evidence to suggest that our banks are vulnerable in the same way that uh, the financial system in other countries was in 2008. And therefore, there's no reason to think that we're going to see that snowball effect where you do get a very big property price correction and it comes through at the same time as a a recession. So, uh, yes, I agree. I don't think it's very likely. uh, And and that's just based on the evidence that we have, the data that we have that we can see.
2: Uh, Sarah? It's a great place to finish and, and when people criticise me on Twitter, I just say, have a look at this interview I did with Sarah Hunter. Thanks very <laughs> much. Thank you. That's Sarah Hunter from BIS Oxford Economics. Coming up after the break, we'll be looking at um, a very interesting conference that's coming up in the not too distant future where some of the uh, people attending this conference are regarded as the rock stars of business. And now, a word from our sponsors.
1: Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans.
2: Now, here's Switzy. And of course, remember, whenever we talk about interest rates here on the Switzer Show, and we're talking about Switzer Home Loans, remember, when we say it's 3.89%, that's the headline rate, and it's also the comparison rate, because we don't have any fees or charges in between. So whenever you're going for a loan, if you can get a better rate than ours, and it's a lower headline rate. Make sure the comparison rate is also lower as well. Now, my next guest is a, a lady by the name of Tanya De Jong. She's the f- founder and CEO of Creative Universe and the founder and executive producer of a conference called Creative Innovation Global. And this is the 2019 version of it. Tanya, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank
2: you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Yes, yeah, same here. So, Uh, just give us an idea of what this conference is all about, Creative Innovation Global.
4: So Creative Innovation Global and Creative Innovation 29, which is coming up April 1st to the 3rd, has the theme Human Intelligence 2.0, A Collective Future, How Will We Manage the Transition? And it's really uh, the leading future-shaping event in the Asia-Pacific in which leaders can deliberate how we're going to manage increasing change, prepare for that change, develop the mindset to manage increasing complexity and uncertainty and, and this VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world mm-hmm. with some of the leading thinkers, innovators, entrepreneurs in the world. Um, so it's, and, it's, and it's wonderful, this conference, because it brings together leaders across, you know, big business, so the top ASX companies, but also small and medium businesses, academia, uh, not-for-profits, and of course government. And when you bring all these sectors together, you get what I like to call positive human collisions where, you know, people don't necessarily agree, but they start to have some light bulb moments. (laughs) Mm. And the the format of the conference is also extremely creative and innovative itself, so people are on the edge of their seats. um, But really it is about moving people uh, forward on this conversation that we've not been having enough in Australia about how to manage increasing acceleration and
2: change. Okay. Why don't you give us, say, the three or four big issues that you'll be looking at? I'm presuming that those two little letters, AI, will sneak into this (laughs) in some shape or form. Yes,
4: artificial intelligence. But, you know, you could also say that was intelligence augmented. Mm or Australia's intelligence, also AI. You know, where are we in Australia's intelligence? Anyway, there's a number of ways to think about AI. Um, mm. But, yeah, so the, the key things that we'll be looking at um, are leadership ethics and governance, and, of course, coming out of the Banking Royal Commission and all of the other ethical issues that have been coming up. So we have people like, you know, Simon Longstaff and, and a number of other ethical leaders, Kathleen Richardson from the UK, of course, in the areas of automation, AI, robotics and the future of work. We have people like Ray Kurzweil, Lauderdale, Turner Um, we have some of the leading thinkers on that of course Dr. Ellen Finkel as well and uh, numbers of others like David Gonski Um, and then we have key themes around education and entrepreneurship so we have people like Jane Den Hollander and a number of other vice chancellors of universities. We have business leaders and small business um, leaders as well who are involved in key themes around entrepreneurship. And then science, technology and the pace of change. So how are we managing these increasingly wicked problems? And how can we use technology to our benefit rather than being subsumed by it or dictated by it? And how are we going to manage increasing inequality?
2: Mm. And it seems to me that uh, people often like these conferences because there are people there who are thinking outside the square on matters that maybe others aren't thinking outside the square because they're busy inside their businesses doing what they have to do. And, mm-hmm. and someone like Ray Kurzweil, uh, who's, mm-hmm. who's written two books, a New York Times bestsellers like Singularity is Near and How to Create a Mind, mm-hmm. he's going to be a bit of a, a, a big appeal factor, I think, for people at the conference.
4: Mm, absolutely and he's doing an international keynote um, which will be about 45 minutes and I mean he is just the most incredible thinker yeah. to get people just leaping exponentially into the future and I think the most important thing about this event is like in three days it will fast track your thinking by three years mm-hmm. about the future and how to how to prepare and the problem is, is that most of us are so busy in our own businesses that we don't really get that helicopter view very often. And people like Ray and a number of these other speakers have said, you know, you, you just sit there with them for just a little while, and, and something changes. You know, it's, it's it's very important that we we have that shift now because it'll be a part, it's, We're here, you know, we're in this transition now, and it's only going to get more complicated.
2: Okay, Tanya. Let's, let's. I'm sure we've excited a lot of my listeners. Mm-hmm. Tell us where, when it's on and where yes. where it's on, and I'll hit you for the website after that. So, when is okay. it on and where is it on?
4: Yeah. So, first to the third of April yeah. at the Sofitel Melbourne on Collins. So, fantastic location at the top of uh, you know top of Melbourne. There, the Paris end of Melbourne. Yeah. About, you know, 50% of our delegates at least come from other states than, than Victoria and we get a lot of overseas delegates as well and we get a mix of leaders and emerging talent from across all sectors. Hey. And, uh, yeah.
2: Okay, so give us the website that people should go to.
4: www.ci2019.com.au And I'm happy to share a special offer with your listeners if Great. you'd like. Yep. Yep. So, our uh, Early Bird closes on the 31st of January, which also offers massive savings, and we're offering your listeners an extra 10% off using the password collective, a collective future, so collective, yeah. <laughs> and that will give you an extra 10% off. So, if you buy your tickets before the 31st of January, uh, you can get over $1,000 off platinum tickets, which is a massive saving.
2: Well, Tanya, good luck with that. I'm sure we'll hear a lot about this in the media as we get closer to the conference. It's between the 1st and the 3rd of April, so for Tell in Melbourne, mm. and uh, good luck with it.
4: No, thank you, and just one other thing I should have mentioned before, but these masterclasses and um, deep conversations, so you you can just go to one or two things. There's lots of options you can take and mm. you don't have to come for the whole thing, but of course if you can, um, that will make you know your ability to manage the, food, the future so much,
2: uh, so much better. Great stuff! Thanks for joining us, Tanya.
4: Thanks, Peter.
2: So that's Tanya De Jong, who is the CEO and founder of Creative Universe and the conference Creative Innovation Global 2019. And coming up after the break, we've got Tim Lawless, who's head of research with CoreLogic, the business that is probably the premier house price watching business in Australia. And now, a word from our sponsors.
1: Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans.
0: (laughs) Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't
2: like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are me teeth? My next guest is Tim Lawless, who is head of research with CoreLogic. And if any organization would have a vested interest in trying to work out where house prices are going, is an organization who's probably the most quoted when it comes to what's actually been going on with house prices. So Tim, thanks for joining us.
0: Pleasure, Peter.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, now the reason why I've got you on my part for the fact that I love talking to you, if I had a choice between any person in the world and, and you, you'd always be in the top well, 200 at least. Tim, <laughs> <laughs> Tim the, the thing is I've been terrorized on Twitter because I've actually made the the argument that maybe house prices won't fall by 40%. As as one commentator suggested was possible, and it maybe it's in Sydney. It might be fifteen to twenty, or maybe maybe a little bit higher. But so I want to at least start off with you by asking the question: How much have house prices fallen in the two scary areas, namely Sydney and Melbourne?
0: Okay, well, well, Sydney is down. Uh, this is over the uh, since the peak. Yeah. Through to the end of December, Sydney's down just over 11%. So it's down 11.1%. Remember, this is still, you know, Sydney values are still nearly 80% higher than what they were 10 years ago. So we've seen a fall of 11.1% against a backdrop of quite uh, spectacular capital gains. Melbourne, on the other hand, uh, peaked much later than Sydney, it's about five months later, and we've seen values fall by 7.2%. In Melbourne, but mm. we are seeing a little bit of momentum uh, gathering in the Melbourne market now, as it looks to play catch up
2: with Sydney. So you're saying that ultimately Melbourne is behind, but it may well get similar numbers to Sydney in the end.
0: Yeah, I think so. We, we may even see Melbourne overtaking Sydney mm. uh, for for being one of the, or recording a weaker uh, peak to, to kind of peak to trough decline. Mm as well because we are seeing the quarter-on-quarter quarter results in Melbourne. Just a little bit weaker than what we're seeing in Sydney. Mm. But once again, you know, Melbourne peaked a little bit later. Uh, Melbourne, on paper at least, does seem to have some stronger drivers, you know, mm. stronger population growth in Melbourne and uh, supply levels. Um, sure, they're a little bit higher than Sydney, but against that, that context of high demand, uh, looking relatively healthy.
2: Now, Tim, some people unwisely might think that all you guys do is just look at the numbers as they come through for, you know, the period that you're trying to estimate the price changes. But I figure you do more than that, that you actually do try to anticipate what the momentum for prices and all those sorts of things will mean for the future. Am I right in asking or presuming yeah, that? absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm.
0: Uh, the housing market is certainly a complex beast and, and trying to forecast where the market's going isn't uh, isn't all that easy. But uh, like anybody, we, we do certainly throw our hats in the ring to, to try and work out where the market's going from here. Mm. And our, our frank view on, on Sydney and Melbourne is that we should expect values to continue falling from here. Mm. But kind of like what you introduced uh, at the beginning there, Peter, we certainly don't expect uh, a decline of, say, 30 or 40% in Sydney or Melbourne but, uh, you know, a decline of around 15 to 20%, considering values in Sydney are already down by 11.1%, certainly isn't all that unreasonable. Uh, but uh, getting beyond, say, uh, 30% is, is looking quite extreme. I think mm. we'd have to see some sort of implosion in the economy or uh, an economic shock, really, for, for the market to fall that far.
2: Yeah. So so what are you seeing at the moment? Like, Like, what... If you were asked, what was the most critical indicator to tell you whether the momentum for selling off um, uh, or, or seeing house prices fall, what is the the standout uh, indicator? Like, for example, in a boom market, you can feel it when it goes off the boil because I know my son bought a house in Melbourne about a year ago and he went to three auctions and there were no bids. and A month before, I'd seen people nearly selling their grandmother into captivity to buy a house. And I thought, well, after going to three successive auctions over three successive weeks, I thought, this market is starting to slow down. The flip side is when do you start, I hope my rough rough indicator was a reasonable one for a man with such um, experience in the market, but what kind of things do you look for to see whether the end of price falls are starting to happen?
0: Well, there's, there's a bunch of indicators, and, and some of them are more timely than others. So I think one of the, the key factors we look for would be inventory levels. That's mm-hmm. that's how many properties are being advertised for sale. And at the moment, we can see, uh, you know, based on how many homes are being advertised, it, it is really starting to pile up. Mm-hmm. Not really due to any panic selling or dumping of stock on the market. In fact, new listings being added to the market are a lot lower than they were a year ago, or for that matter, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. But because homes are taking longer to sell and uh, uh, we are seeing uh, re-listing starting to build up in the market, we're seeing total inventory levels really getting quite high. In Sydney, they're about 35% higher than a year ago. and Melbourne, just a little bit more than that. Mm. So until we start to see that stock coming down, we probably won't see any real leveling in the market simply because buyers have so much choice now. Mm. We've seen a real turnaround from this whole FOMO scene where – buyers really felt they had to rush into the market, they didn't have much room to, get to negotiate. Now they've got a lot of stock to choose from. They can negotiate hard, and if they don't get the price that they're looking for, they can simply move on to the next property, mm. at least in Sydney or Melbourne. So I think that's one of the key things we're looking for is starting to see a levelling or at least a reduction in uh, the number of homes that are being advertised for sale. There's a few other timely indicators. Auction clearance rates are still very good, uh, barometer of the market in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, we won't really get a firm reading on auction results until around the first or second week of February when we start mm. to see volumes coming back. And then you've also got the private treaty measures, which are well, how long does it take on average to sell a property and how much discounting is in the market. And both those indicators are still uh, uh, worsening.
2: Mm. And, and, you, and you make the point that um, we might have to wait to February because a lot of people don't really want to sell until we call it Basically, the the autumn period, like that uh, February-March, is a, a a big time to sell, isn't
0: it? Yeah, well, it's, it's a big time to list your property. Mm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean buyers become more active. Mm. But generally, by, uh, by either um, late summer, early autumn, we're starting to see a lot more people back into the normal rhythm of life. Uh, the whole festive period is done. And we start to see uh, more uh, uh, vendors becoming active to sell. Same thing in, in spring. Yeah, we're done with uh, the whole winter slowdown, and uh, uh, your property's becoming much more presentable as everything greens up. But it doesn't necessarily mean that transaction numbers are going to lift. Mm. Uh, definitely the time to be selling um, because, because of those factors. But it does also mean that there's generally going to be more competition against uh, amongst vendors because we do see a bit of a surge of stock coming into the
2: market. Okay, so let's just f- f- uh, we'll conclude on Sydney and Melbourne in the sense that you're thinking a 15 to 20% is definitely possible, um, probable, or 50 50?
0: Yeah, I think a 15 to 20% fall in, in both markets in Sydney and Melbourne certainly isn't all that unreasonable. We've already seen values in Sydney fall by 11.1%, they're down about 7% in Melbourne. And our view is we'll continue to see values drifting lower throughout 2019, probably into 2020 as well. Of course, there are a lot of wild cards. What happens with credit availability? What happens with the labor markets and uh, with a lot of global uncertainties. So, of course, anything could disrupt that. Um, we could even see interest rates coming down a little bit. seems mm. to be uh, becoming even uh, a possibility. So if we do see those changes, it could actually impact on, on those outlooks as well.
2: Tim, do you have a view on mortgage stress? I I, I see stories about mortgage stress and they they just don't seem as convincing or as rigorous in the way that they find out whether people are under stress or not, but what do you guys do to try and work out whether there is significant mortgage stress?
0: We don't have any formal data on mortgage stress, but one way to, to get a good feel for whether or not people are needing to sell their homes is by monitoring new listings data, so how many fresh listings are being added to the market. And uh, if anything, we're actually seeing vendors becoming more reluctant to sell their homes. There's no, there's no panicked dumping of stock on the market, and there's certainly no, uh, no uh, large additions of stock coming into the marketplace. There's fewer new listings coming on the market than we've seen uh, over the past couple of years. So that's one way to look at it. Another, another way, another angle on, on uh, whether or not households are becoming more in distress need to be looking at the formal data. So you can look at arrears data that comes out of some of the rating agencies like Friction and Moody's and they show that uh, um, 90 day plus arrears are still tracking below 1% of the overall market. So mm. it doesn't look like we're seeing any broad based uh, level of mortgage stress uh, just yet anyway.
2: Okay that's a great answer mate. I, I often um, cast aspersions on the journalists who overhype those mortgage stress stories. And I. I just hoped I was right in being so horrible to these people. Now, one last question, um, because other people from other states do listen to this show. So can can we just run around the country, um, just go to your beloved Queensland? What what do you think is going to happen to Brisbane house prices?
0: Brisbane's been quite flat. You know, on paper, Brisbane's looking relatively healthy. Strong Mm. population growth, relatively uh, healthy affordability, decent rental yields. But the last 12 months, we've only seen Brisbane dwelling values rise by 0.2%, in Mm. essence, just just a steady, flat market. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we see a fairly similar performance in Brisbane, which means it's outperforming the broader market because nothing's going backwards. The values aren't going backwards. uh, I think uh, longer term, we should see Brisbane start to become a stronger performer, at least relative to to Sydney and Melbourne, as the economy improves. Mm. and we see the benefits of all that migration
2: coming into the market. Hobart has been a star lately. Is it going off the boil?
0: Yeah, Hobart is starting to lose some steam. Uh, the last twelve months, we saw values rise by that nine percent, whereas at the peak uh, back in two thousand and seventeen, the, the, the peak annual rate of growth was more like up around twelve or thirteen percent. So the market's definitely still strong. We're still seeing homes selling quite quickly. and uh, and vendors are certainly in the driver's seat, but uh, the market is starting to be affected by affordability constraints and, of course, the the broad, uh, tighter credit situation as well. Adelaide? Uh, Adelaide, similar to Brisbane, a fairly steady market, uh, slightly outperforming Brisbane at the moment. Uh, The market was up 1.3% over the 2018 calendar year. Uh, Relatively strong economic conditions, though migration rates are still uh, uh, pretty soft. But yeah, we are seeing values just lifting a little bit in Adelaide. I think uh, the next year will be quite similar, probably a, a two or three percent gain in, mm. uh, in dwelling values across that market. Really being driven by a, a very healthy level of affordability. Um,
2: we've got the ACT, which is doing doing pretty well, I, I, if I recall. But also, does the ACT do well when a Labor government becomes, um, you know, ensconced in Canberra?
0: Uh, I don't think the a change of government would have a big impact on uh, on the Canberra or the ACT market. You still have the requirement for all the government workers and, uh, and the bureaucrats mm. and so forth. So I think uh, we'll continue to see you know, relatively strong public wages sector growth, which has been one of the factors uh, helping Canberra along. And not a great deal of, of new supply. A lot of the, the supply additions uh, across Canberra have been quite well absorbed as we see an improvement in interstate migration.
2: Okay, let's just finish off with Perth and Darwin. So no one in WA or Northern Territory start hurling insults at me.
0: Yeah, well, the, the two toughest markets by by quite some margin. Uh, we've seen Perth 20 values are down by nearly 16% since they peaked back in the middle of 2014. Darwin even worse, values are down by nearly 25%. Interestingly enough, uh, we were seeing Perth moving towards a, what looked like a, a bottom of the market, But the last um, six months or so, we've seen the downturn, get a a fresh wind. Mm. So we are seeing the Perth Perth market still quite soft. Darwin, on the other hand, uh, is getting pretty close to bottoming out, it seems. After such a substantial fall in values, that market is looking very affordable. But we aren't seeing a great deal of growth drivers in the sense of what normally drives Darwin is a really strong infrastructure spend. And that doesn't seem to be happening uh, at
2: the moment. Well, one last thing on that Perth one, because Perth really went ballistic there for a while, didn't I think their, their median house price was starting to get close to Sydney or even better than Sydney. And it's come off the boil. But are you saying that coming off the boil has only meant a 16% fall in house prices?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when you look at uh, how the Perth markets performed, you're right. Like back in 2006 and 2007, we were seeing values rising at around 40 to 45% per annum. Mm. Absolutely huge rates of growth. The market slumped a bit during uh, the GFC and rebounded mm. due to the strong mining conditions. But yeah, the peak was back in uh, June 2014 and uh, and since then we've seen values slip by 16%. Very different factors, of course. This is very much, much a uh, an economic led downturn, mm. whereas Sydney and Melbourne have been very much influenced by the tighter credit situation.
2: Yeah, great stuff, Tim. As always, thanks for your insights, and uh, once again, jo- thanks for joining us on the Switzer program. Pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Well, that was Tim Lawless, head of research for Core Logic, and uh, he's a go-to guy when it comes to house prices. Thanks for joining us on the show. Talk to you next week.
1: Thank mm-hmm. you.